Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by our Sunday School teacher, my good friend, Dr. Scott Powell, to talk about the Gospel of Mark. In this episode, Scott will talk about Mark 9, verses 1 through 13, and then chapters 11 through 13. We'll talk about the Transfiguration. We'll talk about Jesus's entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then we'll talk about the eschatological discourse. We have asked Pillar co-founder Ed Condon to record the readings in each episode to help you better engage with our conversation. If you've already done the readings ahead of time, you can jump ahead to about 1430 in this episode. But if you haven't, or you just like to hear them, here's Ed with Mark 9, 1 through 13 and chapters 11 through 13. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking round, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, and you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him 
because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence round it, and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but teach truly the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? for the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? 
because you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware the scribes, who will walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end 
will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's right. start uh, then with Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, the Transfiguration. Yeah, and it's important to know this story of the Transfiguration, which is such a well-known story, and it's so prominent, in fact, that it shows up in all of the Synoptic Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this story. Which, and it's all basically the same in all of them. Jesus goes up on the mountaintop, he's transfigured, his clothes become white, his face is glowing, and there he is with Elijah and Moses, mm-hmm. and um, Peter says, uh, do you want me to make you three... Tents, three huts, three dwellings. That's the Sakot is the Hebrew term. Three Sakot. That's the uh, that's the um, that's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. But the, its location is really important because again, we talked about the way of the Lord section. If there's one thing that we should remember about Mark's telling of Jesus's travel down to Jerusalem, it's that he uses this journey to highlight the fact that the disciples are deaf and blind. That they do not understand. And actually, it, it, this is, right. of course, the testimony of Peter. Right. And so this is Peter's own reflection looking back on, I, I think for our benefit, for all of the times that we feel deaf and blind to what God is doing in our lives. Uh-huh. He's like, it, it's okay. And here's the way in which God actually worked this I, out. I, Peter, with the keys yeah. to the kingdom, often didn't see what was happening with the Lord. Absolutely mm-hmm. right. And uh, this particular scene is coming pretty soon after um, that famous scene. We talked about it last time of... 
Peter um, at Caesarea Philippi. Remember when Jesus gives him the keys, he, he makes this incredible profession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Um, coming right after the guy who uh, had two different takes with his healing of his eyes. He spit in his eyes. He saw men who looked like trees. So he saw, but he didn't quite understand what he was seeing. Yeah. Which we saw that Mark was kind of using as a maybe a metaphor, I suppose, for Peter in a certain sense. Who right. could see the Christ, but he didn't understand. Right. And so hot on the heels of that, really, Jesus does what? He takes them up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh-huh. So it's a little uh, apocalypsis. It's an unveiling. Clearly the disciples aren't getting it. They're still not going to get it for a while, so Jesus gives them some sustenance as they're making their way, as they're traveling down to Jerusalem. And so it says, and actually the the wording is important. So I'm going to jump actually to verse 2 of chapter 9. It says in verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and went up on a high mountain apart by themselves. So again, um, significant things happen with Jesus on mountains. Significant things happen with biblical figures on mountains, right? I'm thinking of Moses. The the mind should instantly be going back to the story of the Exodus and the story of Moses here. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think Mark wants us to have in the background. We have a high mountain. The six days is really significant and that it seems like kind of a subtle reference, but back in the book of Exodus, when they went to Mount Sinai, Remember when Israel was released from their slavery in Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, the manna's fallen from the sky, all the stuff's happening. They go to Mount Sinai and they see what's called a theophany, right? God sort of appears in this really profound way with smoke and fire and lightning. And it says that after six days of the smoke and fire and lightning, God finally spoke. And so this is when the revelation happens. So I think there's this subtle kind of reference back to that. And now we don't have a mountain filled with smoke and fire and lightning. The the sort of theophany is embodied in the face of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. That's actually where all the action's taking place, which is kind of cool. Um, we don't have it. I, I was actually reflecting this morning on um, Pope Benedict, uh, Cardinal. No, he was Pope Benedict at the time, not Ratzinger. So Pope De- Benedict XVI wrote his famous Jesus of Nazareth, which I think we've referred to before. Yeah. But he uh, has a beautiful reflection on this passage. And he uses Luke because Luke gives us one detail that none of the other gospel writers give us. Only Luke tells us the purpose of Jesus' going on the mountain. And in Luke's gospel, it says Jesus went on the high mountain to pray. And so what what the Holy Father says is that this is an insight into what it looks like when Jesus prays. I know what it looks like when I pray, and it's not always pretty. But when Jesus prays, he lights up like a light bulb. And his figures from the Old Testament appear. And, and his clothes become white and figures from the Old Testament appear. So the transfiguration is a glimpse into the Lord's interior life. Exactly. That's what he's unveiling. What Whoa. it looks like when he communicates with the Father. Mine is just like wondering how much time has passed. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I watch. And so what, what, what's happening? You have uh, the prayer event, right? All these things are happening. And then who appears? Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses and Elijah represent in a certain sense the, the law the, and the prophets yeah very good you've done one. your hey. homework yeah why because moses of course was the lawgiver right. par excellence right elijah he's he's always held up as the greatest of the prophets even though he's he doesn't have a prophetic book named after him That's which true. is actually kind of interesting but it's yeah. it's okay mm-hmm. the other significance is that they both have these encounters with god on a mountain yeah. So the geography is actually significant. And the fact that they sort of represent for the Jewish people the law and the prophets. Again, Pope Benedict in, his, in Jesus of Nazareth said, what, what you're seeing here is this very deep piece of Catholic theology that the law and the prophets are speaking to and about Jesus. 
What is the whole Old Testament doing? The law and the prophets taken together, which is the Old Testament put in simplified form. They're talking to Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. They're pointing toward Jesus. That's the whole nature of them. And so now that concept is embodied on the mountain, which is really cool. So one thing that I guess I've never understood is, is the transfiguration something that is happening to Jesus or is it happening for the apostles? Like, is this... I know it's not the moment when Jesus is being bitten by a radioactive spider, so to speak. Um, but is this is this a sort of uh, is this a sort of transformative moment for Jesus in some way, or is this a somewhat ordinary moment made made manifest or revealed? I take it as something for the benefit of the apostles. Mm-hmm. And again, this seems to be what Pope Benedict is saying. What he's doing is letting them in. Not on maybe his ordinary everyday life. This doesn't always happen. Well, maybe it does. I don't know. But what it's doing is lifting the veil on the identity of Jesus, on right. this reality that is standing before them. Right. For the sake of the apostles. Right. Or the, these these three apostles in particular. You know, it's very interesting. If this is a glimpse into the ordinary prayer life of Jesus, then it's interesting that when Jesus is praying at the Mount of Olives uh, ahead of his crucifixion, yeah. when he's in this moment of near despair or desolation, we don't have this experience, you know, the the witness, this revelation of transfiguration. Well, maybe just because they were asleep. Well, maybe because it they was were probably asleep. all happening. <laughs> they were, they were. <laughs> but in a certain way, Jesus know. himself is is. Um, it's a very different kind of experience of prayer, isn't it? Yeah, but they're related to each other because there is a sort of theophany going on in Gethsemane as well, right? That you're, you're actually revealing the sweating of the blood right. is actually revealing something of the depths yeah, of the person of true. Jesus and, yeah. what, oh. and what he's doing and what he's fulfilling and what all this is pointing to. And so, yeah, yeah they're different, but they are definitely related to each other. Yeah. And this that's that's an important, actually, could you bring that up? That's a good insight into prayer, right? It's not always going to be the transfiguration. Sometimes right. it's going to be Gethsemane. Yeah. And both of those are the experience that Jesus demonstrates to us of prayer right which is kind of cool that's a cool insight um so they're seeing this and peter of course responds he's like this is great it's great that we're here and he wants to build sukkot right the 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 booth or the tent or the tabernacle as it could be translated um i'm not exactly sure why he does this i don't think it's simply because it's really cool and he wants to stay there and not enter back into the world it's a reference, I think, and I don't know Isn't whether... there's something, the Feast of Booths? Yeah, there's the Feast of Sukkot, the okay. Feast of Booths, which is a feast that recalls the Exodus period. So that, that mm. relates to the narrative. And what it's recalling is this is a period where Jewish people will, will literally dwell in huts or booths or tents, recalling the time. And it still happens today. You can go to Manhattan. Roof, right? Sometimes in the streets, mm. you know, in front of their houses. Mm. They do that, recalling the time that... All of Israel and God himself dwelt in tents in the wilderness for 40 years as they wandered, awaiting for the moment that God would lead them to the promised land. So every year they recall that moment. They live in that time when when even God with us dwelt in a tent. So it's unclear to me whether that's this actually is the Feast of Tabernacles. And Peter's like, well, this is a great, a good as any place to do it. Or he actually gets the... the um, references back to the Old Testament. He's like, the appropriate thing to do is to actually live out what this feast celebrates and actually kind of do it here. I don't, I don't know, but the, the bottom line is that Peter sees what's going on here. In his blindness, he still sees what's actually happening. And what also Mark doesn't give us, but I'm going to take us back to Luke for a second. Luke also gives us the topic of their conversation. And again, Mark doesn't tell you what they're talking about. But do you remember in the other Gospels what it says they're talking about? I do not remember. That's okay. I wasn't trying to trick you. But they were speaking about Jesus' exodus, which he was to perform in Jerusalem. And so Luke kind of puts as fine a point on it as he can and say, in the context of on a mountain, this theophany, all these things happening, 
they're actually speaking about the exodus, which is going to happen in Jerusalem, which mm. I think would be, might sound, I don't know, we, we kind of get used to, to Bible saying weird things. Right. But that the exodus was a very specific event that happened in a very specific period of time in a very specific place. And I think it would be strange to be talking about, I don't know, what's an equivalent? Uh, that I was talking about the Super Bowl that I had last week in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not really the Super Bowl. Right. Like you can have a football game. But oh. it's a singular event. And sure. so for them to be speaking about the exodus that's going sure. to take place in Jerusalem, we'd yeah. be like, well, wait. That didn't take place in Jerusalem. It took place in Egypt thousands of years ago. But what it's speaking to is what Jesus' passion actually is. It is a new exodus. What's Mm -hmm. the exodus? It is a movement from slavery to freedom, Mm -hmm. from homelessness to a promised land, from oppression into freedom in in the plan of God. That's what he's about to do. So again, God's lifting, Jesus is lifting the veil a little bit. I think as, as... kind of a spiritual sustenance because he knows how hard this is going to get for the apostles and he knows they need a little bit of insight to be able to keep going. It doesn't seem to work in the short term because we know what's going to happen at the passion, but obviously it works in the long term because Peter does eventually unpack this and it does find its way into the gospels. And there's a moment where they say, oh, now we get what Jesus was trying to show us. I see. Which I think is kind of cool. So then for our benefit, it shows up. Now, the, the the next thing that happens is they're talking and Peter asks about these tents and mm. um, then there's something that evokes the baptism of Jesus, which was yes. in Mark chapter 1. Thank you for catching this. Um, where uh, from a cloud comes a voice that says, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Yes. And what I noticed, Dr. Powell, is how this, um, obviously there's a similarity, a parallel to what happened at the baptism of Jesus, yeah. but there are two changes. One, instead of saying, um, with whom I'm well pleased. Right. Um, it's a command. It's a and then command. the second is the person who is being addressed, the subject of the, the, the person being addressed changes. So at Jesus' baptism in the Gospel of Mark, the voice says, you are my beloved son. Yes. And then here it's a proclamation, um, not to the Lord, but outward to say, this is my beloved son. Right. What so, are the meaning of those things? Uh, Mark 1, it's in Mark 1, right? The baptism, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark 1 is a reference back to Psalm number 2, the coronation hymn. Uh-huh. So God is actually quoting himself in in. The psalm probably written by David that he pronounced over Solomon when he was becoming king. This is my beloved son mm. with whom I am well pleased. God actually says that about the kings of Israel. So that the proclamation was a coronation proclamation. This is a reminder back to the reality. Mm. And it presupposes that that coronation has already taken place. That this is the identity now have, having been revealed of the son, who he is as king. And now it's, all, it's like the apostles are being told, don't forget Listen to him. You're not doing a great job right now. And we've been talking about wanting to, about Mark emphasizing the authority of Jesus. Absolutely. Through, uh, uh, you know, over demons, over absolutely the natural world. Yes. All throughout the gospel of Mark. And this listen to him, it seems would underscore that authority. I think so. Okay. I think so. Yeah. I mean, there could be more depth to it, but that, that's what kind of I'm seeing at face value. The other thing about that that reminds us of the baptism scene is that you have the whole Trinity present once again. Right, you have the voice of the Father. You have the Spirit. Actually, Mark doesn't give you the Spirit, but the uh, uh, Luke's Gospel. I keep going back to Luke. Luke actually does, and so you have the whole Trinity sort of present again, um, again in this theophany that's happening. The voice coming out of the cloud, reminding us back of both the baptism and the Exodus story. Again, not as something that's simply happening for Jesus's benefit, but that Jesus is pulling the veil back on to reveal yeah. to the apostles. So I a- think. So after this happens, yes. Jesus tells them. Jesus tells the apostles in verse 9 not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And right. The response of the of the <laughs> apostles seems to be something like, um, what the hell? Um, kind of. You know, what is, well, this, what is this all about? What does this mean? 
I don't know. I don't want to give the apostles too much credit. Because, <laughs> well, but there was a debate. I will say this. There was a debate that was going on in the time of Jesus about the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Mm-hmm. And we see actually later on in, I think it's in Mark chapter 12, the Sadducees are actually challenging about what happens after a person's right. life. Remember the whole marriage thing yeah. when this person died and who's going to be married in the afterlife, right. which is actually a mockery of the concept of the resurrection of the dead. But there's all these prophecies in the Old Testament, I think specifically of Ezekiel, that talk about resurrection, bodies coming back from the dead, being a signpost or a marker of the Messianic age when God comes to set things right. Mm-hmm. There's the uh, Ezekiel's famous vision of the dry bones. Right. Remember, he sees these bones that like come back together and form muscles and all the stuff. Nobody in the time of Jesus knew whether that was a metaphor or not, mm. right? Everybody was associating the idea of resurrection with the Messianic age. But a lot of people was like, well, it's, it's metaphorical, right? It's like we are coming back to life as the people of Israel. And the mm-hmm. bones, you know, are about us coming back together as a people. I don't think many people were actually expecting a physical body to come back from the dead. Mm. And so I wonder if that's partly what they're talking about. They're like, okay, he's, he's bringing up this resurrection thing, which we've heard before. Is, it, is, is he talking literally? Is it a metaphor? It almost reminds me of the John 6 passage about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Are you, are you speaking metaphorically? Right. What, are you, what are you doing here? Right. Maybe, they're just, maybe they are just simply saying, I don't have a clue what's going on because they've demonstrated that before too. But there is sort of a weird theological train of thought going on where people mm-hmm. are trying to figure this one out. Mm-hmm. So that when Jesus rises from the dead, it's not completely unexpected, but I don't think most people were expecting it to be literal. Right. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So I think yeah, that's absolutely. that's part of the conversation going on. And they're confused. And then Elijah comes into it, evoking this prophecy from Malachi that says, okay, before the Messiah comes back, Elijah will appear first, mm-hmm. which Mark reminded us of that back when, when John the Baptist showed up. He's going to show up back again during Holy Week, so hang on to that. But then I think what, what I find most interesting, and then we can move on from the transfiguration, is what happens when they come off the mountain. Uh-huh. Because number one, they don't want to leave. Uh-huh. Number two, they want to kind of relive this experience of Sinai, I think, and, and creating these booths, whether it's actually the feast or they just want to recall. It's like, you know, man, it's Christmas in July. I just want to put up a Christmas tree because I want to live kind of in, in that moment. Right. But then they come back to what? To total chaos. And they come back to this fight and this argument and a demoniac that nobody can seem to heal or fix, uh-huh. um, which is there's, again, something I think kind of beautiful about that, that God often gives us the deepest insights into who he is and who he is in our lives in the most chaotic moments, right? Yeah. When everything is just kind of falling apart. And they come down to the situation where there's this person who has a demon and the apostles or the disciples, it says, can't seem to do it. And it's another insight of... Uh, the disciples don't seem to, he talks about the faithless generation, right? Faithlessness. They seem to be approaching their authority that's been given to them by Jesus, kind of like a magic trick. If we just say these words correctly, then this thing will happen. If we use the right formula, then the thing will take place. And that's not working here. And they're like, we're doing the formula. We're doing the things. We're saying the words. At least that's the impression I get. (laughs) And it's not working. And later on, Jesus has to pull them aside and say, hey, you know, there's some things that are not going to be formulaic. It's only prayer and fasting that's actually going to work. And um, it's not simply a, a scolding of process. It's a scolding of where their hearts are. Because remember, he already said that they had hardness of heart. This is one of the manifestations of their hard hearts coming out. We're doing the stuff, we're doing the formulas, and the magic trick's not working. And so, it's again, it's not a coincidence that that comes immediately after the transfiguration, where they're given this insight that they're going to need to hang on to to understand everything that's going to come. There is a very long conversation that I want to have about how... Uh, With me? 
(laughs) (laughs) Yes, but about how that relates to the heresy of Donatism. Um, but I think probably I'm going to, if we have that conversation, we will have it in a bonus episode because yeah. I know that we want to move into Mark 11 through 13. I saw it in your eyes as but I was saying those words. can we have that conversation? I think so. Okay. I don't know if I know what the answers are, to be honest with you. we but, can bring it up. But it's an interesting, this is actually where and this so stuff Donatism is Donatism is the heresy concrete. that says that, uh, Donatists argue that effectively priests in order to, um, to affect, and this is, I think, I want to say in like the 6th or 7th century, argue that priests in order to affect the sacraments had to be um, in a state of grace and had to be effectively yeah. holy to, to, to validly celebrate the sacraments. And the church said that that's a heresy, that the yeah. efficacy of the sacraments doesn't depend on the holiness of the minister, which is true. Right. But it would be interesting to sort of understand this in relationship to that. I know now is not the time, but we'll put a pin in it. Well, let me just take the pin out for just two seconds. <laughs> because I, I I don't know what the answer is. And I was actually hoping you wouldn't bring this up. But because I, th- this is actually a struggle. because But but I think the, the thing that where my, my brain goes... Is that I think I mean I, obviously Donatism is a heresy, but uh, according to the Church, if the priest says the right formula, the Eucharist will be convicted. Right? right, it will happen, or sins will be that, forgiven, or, or sins will be forgiven. Person will be reborn in the waters of baptism. Or... But that's also not a magic trick. If I receive right. the real body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, that doesn't automatically mean I become holier. It right. means I'm given the grace that I can respond to. Right, but it's not a magic trick. Again, right. I mean it, it happens. It's real. The sacramental. Grace is present, yeah. but the sacramental grace doesn't force itself on me. I'm not going to be automatically healed if right. I have, um, yeah, if I go to Lourdes and I pray fervently, right. it doesn't mean I'm automatically going to be healed as long right. as I say the right word. Yeah, so, that's right. But it doesn't take away the efficacy of the re- reality of the sacraments either. Right. So, right. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. <laughs> Sounds great. And that's where we'll leave <laughs> All right, so I want to jump ahead then to chapter 11. So in between, we talked about, I think we left off last time talking about uh, blind Bartimaeus, right? Right. Who was this model of discipleship that even the disciples couldn't be. And and obviously we have Peter recalling that story. But then the travel narrative, the way of the Lord section ends. And we actually get um, right in the beginning of chapter 11, the last time the word way or hodos, one of the themes for Mark is used. It's never used again. Why? Because this is the end of the road. This is the end of the way. By the way, <laughs> I didn't mean that. Um, Still you... I can't let go. Okay, I'm sorry. I was just and thinking was about that? the end of the road. Voice of the to road. Oh, I was thinking Did you way. never go to a middle school dance? I, well, <laughs> we don't have to get into that. We'll talk about that in a bunch that's of a different. Too. Yeah, that's a different matter. Um, man, that really led me. Okay, wait. Do you remember trivia? I, I know you do know this. Well, I hope you I shouldn't, I shouldn't presume. Before they were called Christians, do you remember what the earliest followers of Jesus called themselves? The way. The way. Followers of the way. And I, got, the, I knew that and I got it from context. So a double. Oh, see, there you go. But that's an important note. So they, they were, they took on the name Christians at uh, Pisidian Antioch. It's in Acts of the Apostles. But it was a mockery. It was, a, it was something that they were using as a slander. Oh, you people always fall on your Christ. You're a bunch of Christians. Before that, and they were like, yeah, great, we'll take it. And they baptized the name and it became the title. But before that, they were followers of the way. And I think it's significant to note what 
the early followers of Jesus thought about themselves when they referred to each, themselves that way. And I think the two, what are the two greatest journeys? What are the two greatest roads in the Bible? Number one, of course, is the story of the Exodus, right? right? That is the greatest journey that anyone um, um, undertakes, right? From slavery into freedom through the promised land, through the 40 years, all the stuff. And then they overlay that on the second, not the second, the second, not in second greatest, but second chronologically uh-huh. greatest journey, which, which is, is the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem. I would take it beyond that. Oh, the journey of Jesus to the cross. To the cross, right? The way of the cross. This is all prelude to mm. this, right? And then the way of the cross, which again is not secondary in any way, shape, or form. Sure. It's greater than, but it's the second one chronologically. And so the early church, I think, are overlaying the way of the cross onto the story of the Exodus. And they say, that's who we are. The Exodus story, the journey from slavery to freedom goes directly through the cross, through Mm -hmm. Calvary. So I think that's important because Mark is definitely leaning on that idea by using this terminology. But he doesn't use it again. This is the last place he says it. So chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Then they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, which are kind of the two closest in suburbs, right, to Jerusalem. At the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately, remembers Mark's use of immediacy, as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and he'll send it back immediately. It's cool. Okay. This is a weird scene. Again, we've probably heard it before. You will hear it on yeah. Palm Sunday. This is the scene where they get just outside of Jerusalem and Jesus asks his disciples to essentially go steal someone's animals right. and bring them back. Right. Which the apostles seem unquestioningly to do. Yeah. Why? I think they're doing it. I think part of their, I I bet the apostles are really excited at this moment. And I think the reason that they're really excited is because everyone wants to steal a colt. Everyone wants to steal something, whether it's a colt or not. But this was, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, where are we? We're we're outside of Denver, right? So they're coming into Denver and they hit Littleton. It's like, I want you to go into the village and I want you to find a Tesla and I want you to bring it to me. Let's do it. If anybody says why, be like, it's because I'm the editor in chief chief of the pillar. It's fine. Um, and they're like, yeah, that sounds great. But a king, both in the Roman law and I think in Jewish law as well, had the legal right to commandeer an animal for royal purposes. Oh. So I always think of Die Hard. I don't know if it ever even happens of Die Hard, but I just have, um, what's that? What's the actor's name? The, I've never seen Die Hard. You've never seen any of the Die Hards? No, no Die Hards. It's a real... But you know who Bruce Willis is. I do. You've heard yeah. of him. Uh-huh. Yeah, I just have an image of Bruce Willis bleeding in a like a tank top on a highway, flashing his badge, being like, I need to commandeer your Mercedes or whatever. I don't know if Bruce Willis ever does that in a movie. But right in 80s movies. Did you <laughs> yeah, not grow no, up in the same I, movies I did? I mean, that's if that's the image that you have... That's the image that, that I the have. Image that you have. They have to commandeer the really so, nice car. But a king has a anyway, right. A king, a king has, has a right to commandeer an animal for royal purposes. Mm-hmm. So I bet... The apostles are thinking, finally, you're doing royal stuff now. We've been wandering around doing all this stuff. We've never reaped the benefit. And now, as we approach Jerusalem, the holy city, on the lead up to Passover, the holiest feast of the year... You're getting an animal. Yeah. And they're like, boom. It, it, um, this is going to come back up in Mark, but there's this theme that there's a bunch of stuff that Jesus has arranged and Jesus is up to that we don't exactly know how he does it. He has arranged things that even the apostles don't know about. He obviously mm-hmm. has friends or, you know, relationships or whatever, that there is stuff ready and waiting for us that we didn't see coming. And this is one of the examples of that. So they bring the animals back. Um, and I think this is a really important. Well, it's Palm Sunday. That's really important. But in it's a way that I think most big, people see, it's kind of a big like. Uh, it's a for a guy who 
in many parts of the journey to Jerusalem was keeping things quiet in yes. the Jewish areas. In the non-Jewish areas, Jesus was um, allowing people to kind of talk about what... More so, yeah. But in yeah. Jewish areas around Jerusalem, he was cautious. He didn't want... Yes. But then this whole thing this is, is a gigantic, like a kind of a go big or go home moment in a certain But point. I want to talk about why it's a go big or go home okay. moment because he doesn't say anything, uh-huh. but he does a tremendous amount. So um, they get the animals, they bring them back. There's lots of symbolism with the animals the fathers of the church talk about. But regardless, he gets the animals. He sits on, where are we? We're in verse six. And he told them what Jesus said, let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their garments on it and he sat thereon. And many spread their garments on the hodos, on the road. And others spread leafy branches, which they cut down from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you remember what Hosanna means? It means save us. Save us. So save us, son of David. I right? said that. I don't know if my microphone cut out. Or what, <laughs> it must but, have. There yeah. was a, a glitch. Um, okay. Here's the scene. It's Sunday. It's Palm Sunday, obviously. So it's about, what are we, four-ish days before the Passover, which means that thousands of people are flocking into Jerusalem that day. Yeah. It's one of the three pilgrim feasts. And so mm-hmm. in Jewish law, there are three feasts that you are required by law to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. It's almost like a Sunday obligation, right? Yeah. You have to go there to do it. And this was probably the biggest one. Thousands of people would be flocking into the city this day. Um People don't really know Jesus. That's one of the things that does become apparent. A lot of people do. A lot of people have followed him. But remember, messiahs or would-be messiahs at this point are kind of a dime a dozen. And a lot of them seem to have more popular messages than Jesus does. Like, forgive your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They're like, let's rip down Caesar from his throne. Let's take down Herod. You know, let's go after it. They're the bloody revolutionaries. Jesus is not super well known. He is up in the Galilee, right? They love him up there, but we're not in the Galilee anymore. Now we're in Jerusalem, and this yeah. is a bit of a different world. How many people do you think are riding an animal into the holy city that day? One. And I'll tell you why. Tell me why, JD. I'll tell you why. Because the Passover is a pilgrim feast, Scott. And what does that mean? The thing about a pilgrimage is a, a, a pilgrimage. People walk on a pilgrimage. That's right. You know, which, by the way, I have a whole soapbox about... Uh, the the modern notion of pilgrimage cruises and other such you can walk things. around it, the deck. I guess you can walk, walk around the to deck, the bocce ball court. That's we'll we'll put a pin in that one too. But people walk <laughs> on a pilgrimage, so I would assume that that people are walking into Jerusalem because I kind of right. was thinking not to sort of mix, but you know I was kind of thinking about like the pilgrimage to to the Hajj, you know, and yeah, when, yeah, but yeah, contemporary Muslims right. who then walk around the. Big... I think that's the right image okay, to actually yeah, have. Uh-huh, yeah, right, and that's that. Even culturally speaking, that would have that's a good image to actually have sort of in our minds. I think, okay, at least as uh, by analogy. Yeah, by analogy. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, Mark um, calls this animal a colt. Other translations call it a donkey. You can translate the word Mark uses for colt as young donkey. Oh, okay. so I don't think there's a discrepancy here over kind of the, our traditional notions of Palm Sunday. Of a donkey. But that's significant, and it's significant the kind of animal he's riding. So remember, Jesus isn't very well known here. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew actually gives me gives us uh, my favorite line from this story, and I know we're, we're kind of filling in the gaps from other Gospels. But in Matthew's Gospel, as he's riding in, as people start flipping out, shouting Hosanna, tearing down palm branches. Remember, this is the crowds of thousands that just happen to be there. I don't get the impression that Jesus has a huge entourage with him. He has some. You know what there I was are kind of thinking people. about? And I don't know, but did you ever see the movie Ali? No. Oh, well, you missed a good movie. Thank uh, you. Better than Die Hard. There's this scene. <laughs> well, like, kind of how like, do you know that? Well, You've never seen Die Hard. There's this scene where all these people are kind of around. Like, uh, Muhammad Ali's going to fight, like, I don't know, Joe Frazier or something. Yeah. And there, or maybe George Foreman. I, I don't know. But all these people are kind of around him and all these reporters and stuff. And yeah. then Muhammad Ali walks into the room and he has, like, this, like, 
bell or like a kind of a cowbell, and he hits and he goes, the champ is here, the champ is here, and he's just kind of like proclaiming his own entrance. And there aren't a lot of people around him. But that's what Peter's like, doing. Yeah, that's what Peter, is that what Peter is doing? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, that, that's possible, and there's there's silence on the part but, of the scriptures. But the symbolism of Jesus riding a cult I is think, this, yes. the champ is here kind of thing. It's and the so animal. people would pick it up like, yes. Wow. Because, again, no one would have done this. And, right. and, again, to drive the point home, Matthew says, as they're shouting Hosanna, as they're cutting down palm branches, as they're putting their garments down before him, they're shouting Hosanna and then saying in the next breath, hey, who is this? Mm-hmm. Which tells us they don't know who – his reputation has not preceded him. Mm-hmm. Some people know who he is. And once he gets into his conflict in the temple area with the religious leaders, he becomes known and people remember. But, by and large, I don't think this crowd knows who he is. Okay. They're seeing the symbolism. And in a culture where, you know, false messiahs or potential would-be messiahs are a dime a dozen, uh-huh. and everyone's claiming to be the one that they should follow because they're the rightful king, they're God's chosen, they're the anointed one, I bet no one has had the guts to ride a donkey into the holy city under the nose of Herod on a major pilgrim feast day. Because the donkey, what's the symbolism of the donkey? The donkey symbolism takes us back to the book of Second Samuel. Uh-huh. And th- there's a number of things that the donkey kind of feeds into. Mm-hmm. And the one that people mainly go to, I think the go-to in a lot of our heads, those of us who are sort of well-formed, it comes from Zechariah, that has this prophecy about your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey, uh-huh. riding on an ass. Which, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a piece of humility in this, but this isn't primarily a humble act, I don't think. Right. Yes, the donkey is a humble-ish animal, but it's not that humble because we think of it as a humble animal in our culture. But I mean, the donkey was expensive. You know, it's like it might not be a Tesla, but you know, it's it's like a nice Chevy or Plus, you know a Ford even Expedition. The fact that it, even the fact that that scripture exists that says your king will be riding a donkey, it's like well, right, the king is coming humble. Yeah, the riding on the donkey, I don't think is the pinnacle thing that expresses the humility. Sure. Because in the story of 2 Samuel, there's this wonderful story where David is on his deathbed. Remember King David, the greatest king, he's on his deathbed, and as he's on his deathbed and kind of kind of starting to lose it, a bunch of his sons are sort of vying for coup attempts over the, the throne. And Bathsheba comes and she remembers, hey, you have made a promise. You swore in a covenant that Solomon was going to be king, not right. these other sons. These other sons are kind of making these power plays. David kind of comes to it and he's like, okay, this will be the sign. I want Solomon to ride my donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And that will be the sign that everyone knows beyond the shadow of a doubt who the next king is. Mm. It's him. And that was a really important moment in salvation history. So Jesus riding a donkey into the city of Jerusalem would have evoked memories of kingship, of royalty. And I bet you, again, in a world where a lot of people are claiming to be Messiah— nobody's had the guts to do this. Sure. And I think part of what's going on, and I've, I'm a little cynical in this, but we know what's going to happen to these crowds in a couple of days. I think a lot of people are really excited and they're like, oh my gosh, somebody's doing something that no one has had the guts to do. Yeah. Everyone's all talk. This guy is riding a donkey and he's got these little group of followers. And I bet people are saying, I think this guy might actually be legit. This yeah. guy might actually have something that no one else has. And yeah. if not... He's going to get killed in a pretty dramatic way. Either way, we want to watch. We want to accompany and see what on earth is going to happen. Because a lot of people have been all talk. You're actually doing something. What will happen next? So, I, you know, there's a a fickleness to the crowd during the kind of Holy Week scheme. something's going to happen. 
I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, I mean, they're shouting Hosanna. They're shouting, right. save us, son of David. That's not, right. <laughs> these aren't people who are missing the imagery. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're saying you're the son of David. Yeah. Save us. From what? From Caesar, from Pilate, yeah. from all these enemies. And if not, again, this is my cynicism coming out. We want to watch the show. Sure. And so there's a lot of people following. Yeah. So he gets there, right? And this is the, <laughs> in verse 11, I don't mean to laugh, because, but it's weird. In verse 11, it says, Then he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's a weird way. Mark always has these weird, almost artificial sounding endings to the story because uh-huh. he likes to leave us hanging with things. Yeah. So there's like all this hoopla. You don't understand it, right? Yeah. We've been <laughs> yeah, saying the whole exactly. time, Mark leaves us with an air of mystery. Yes. He's great at the cliffhanger. He wants us to walk Jesus in the shoes of the in. disciples. Jesus. And like if it's contemporary, like Jesus yeah. goes in. I'm picturing like the analogy limps for an obvious reason, but I'm picturing like the Via della Conciliazione, which leads up to St. Peter's. It's yeah. like, yes, here yes. comes Jesus coming down the... St. Peter, you know, and it's like he's got this walk-on music yep. and all this stuff, and uh, then he, like, goes... Peter's this, ringing the bell. Yeah, and then he like, kind of, like, goes into St. Peter's. He's like, oh, there's the Pieta. Wow, look at that. And Baldacchino. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, well, let's get dinner. Oh, that's yeah, late. That's kind of like, <laughs> let's yeah, go, yeah. That's how we... I think that's the vibe. That's the vibe I get from it. Right. Um, which is important. Now, again, other Gospels sort of arrange it differently, but Mark is doing something. So then we jump to verse 12. There's another piece of imagery from the entrance into Jerusalem that I want to come back to the next day. So verse 12, it says, on the following day when they came from Bethany. So Bethany tends to be the place where Jesus stays when he's in the holy city. That's where Martha and Mary and Lazarus seem to live. Um, So he's out there. So on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Rightly so, because it was late when they got there. I guess everything was closed. Um, and verse 13, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Why? Because it wasn't fig season. It wasn't the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Right. And the disciples heard it. And then what does Mark do? Because he loves to do it. Cliffhanger. Just leaves you there. Moves on. Then they went to Jerusalem. Yep. Right. And I love that scene for a number of reasons. It just seems like Jesus, I mean... Yeah, all the puns you want to have. Jesus hasn't had his coffee. He's got hunger rage. You know, he's ticked off at this. But I love the last line, and the disciples heard it. Because that, that evokes for me this feeling of, like, the disciples are, they're, they're seeing something's going on. You're commandeering animals. You're marching into the holy city. You're doing these really unprecedented things. And now you're cursing a fig tree. And is it about Israel? Well, don't get ahead of it. Okay. You're getting ahead of things. Sorry. So the other thing that Mark, one of the many things that Mark loves to do is give us those sandwiches. Have we talked about Mark and sandwiches? We have talked about okay. Mark and sandwiches. This is... Mark likes to give us a story, something seemingly unrelated, and then the thing again. Yeah. So this is the fig sandwich. Okay. The fig tree sandwich. And this is one of the best Mark and sandwiches there is, I is think. Is a fig newton a sandwich, do you think? Mmm. I'm open to it. Okay, fair enough. I'm open to it. Fair enough. Uh, All right. So then, after he kind of leaves the disciples in this weird confusion, then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he taught and he said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all of the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And then it says the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they sought a way to destroy him. For they feared him because of all the magnitude was astonished at his teaching. And uh, when it was evening, they went out of the city. Okay. A nice little package, neatly wrapped together story. The cleansing of the temple, again, in some of the gospel accounts, it kind of happens right when he comes into Jerusalem. Mark kind of places it the next day. Um, 
But this is important. The first thing we have to remember when we get to this is what the temple actually was. So he goes to the temple and he does these pretty profound things. What is the temple? For the Jewish people, the temple was, it was the spiritual economic and political center of all of Israel. It was everything to them. This was where, I mean, the temple was the place where God dwelt, the physical dwelling place of God. We've talked about that, right? Maybe we haven't. We have. And in the time of Jesus, of course, it was believed that the temple was vacant. Did we talk about that? We did. Okay. Um, But still, this is the place that we are waiting. So when the temple was destroyed the first time back in 586 by the Babylonians, um, everyone actually Ezekiel saw a vision of the presence of God leave the temple because people would, Jesus chooses to quote Jeremiah, who was a prophet during that time. And he was a prophet basically condemning the people of Israel for Israel had gone through by the time of Jeremiah, a number of different wars and battles, most recently with the Assyrians. Well, the Assyrians were the ones who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They came in to kind of finish the job with Jerusalem. And there was an amazing scene in which Hezekiah, who was the king of Israel, went and he was the first king of Israel in a very long time who actually turned back to God, who lay prostrate, who offered the people of Israel back to God in in his mercy. And miraculously, the Assyrians pull back. And they leave and Jerusalem is spared and everyone rejoices. Well, the people after that point kind of get the wrong impression that, well, what that teaches us is that because we have this temple, because Hezekiah went in that building and prayed, it's kind of like a lucky charm. It's like a lucky rabbit's foot. And so now we're not going to listen to any of the warnings and heeds from Jeremiah or any Uh of these losers because we're fine. We're unstoppable. We always kind of thought we were untouchable, but now this proved it because God is up there. And so Jeremiah says things like, "You've not only you've made the the temple into a den of robbers, he says, you are hiding behind the deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This is in Jeremiah chapter 7. Because what they're doing is saying, because we have this temple, because we've got God in this building up here on the hill, we're fine. We're good. We can do whatever we want to. So once you get to Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees... One time I read a story about a a guy who was robbing banks in Latin America and... um, Sounds like a great story. It is. It was a new story. It was a new story about a guy who was robbing banks in Latin America and he would get into these sort of dangerous situations and when he was like eventually caught and interrogated, and he would be in sort of gunfights and all this stuff. And when he was eventually interrogated, the, you know, I think the police were asking him like, "Well, weren't you worried about your safety?" Yeah. And he said like, "No, because I have my scapular." Right. right? It's like, well, right. that's not exactly how it works. Right. But <laughs> yeah. it's a similar kind of. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Yeah, th- that's actually a great analogy. But now it's on a national level. Right. Right. Um, again, that, that's in the time of Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. But then Ezekiel sees this vision of the presence of God, their little lucky rabbit's foot, yeah. actually leave the temple. Yeah. Go out the East Gates, cross the Kidron Valley, Mount of Olives. And his response is, oh, no, that's God isn't here anymore. And that is right before the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians in 586, 587. Um, and then from that point on, the people go into exile, they go into slavery, they're released, they rebuild Jerusalem eventually under Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild the temple, but nobody ever saw the presence of God come back. Mm. And there was all these prophecies that someday God's presence would return. Someday God's going to come back and blow all of our minds because it's going to be unlike anything we ever saw before, which of course happens at the presentation when Jesus is brought as an infant to the temple. And Simeon says those famous words of like, oh, now my eyes have seen the salvation right. which you promised. Right. This is the answer to all this that. This is the return of the Lord's this presence the in the temple. Exactly right. And then he leaves, and then he comes back and goes back and forth. But now he's back again. Now the presence of God is back. Mm-hmm. And he has declared that it has now again become a den of robbers and thieves. 
Um, just a word about what he does with the overturning of the tables, because people love to go to that, yeah. to use it to say, basically say whatever they want it to say. Yeah. Um, the cleansing of the temple, the overturning of the money changers tables. There, there's two things going on here. There are laws in the Old Testament governing how sacrifice was to look, right? So if you were a good and faithful Jew, you would regularly go to Jerusalem to the temple on these pilgrim feast days, and you would offer an animal to the priest to sacrifice on your behalf so that you, your sins would be cleansed and forgiven in the symbolic way. But those, and which is fine, we know that story. But in Leviticus and Deuteronomy 2, there's very specific uh, rules governing how you do that. And so the animal that was to be offered for sacrifice had to be in what state? A spotless lamb. Spotless. A well, it didn't have to be a lamb. That was the Passover a spotless, specifically. Spotless victim. But whatever it was, it had to be pure. Blood, and under, pure. And so imagine you live up near Caesarea Philippi or in Tyre and Sidon or something. And you've got your multi-day, maybe multi-week journey through the wilderness, through the desert, on dirty, dusty roads, camping on the side of the road to get to Jerusalem to offer your sacrifice. I mean, what do you think your goat or your sheep is going to look like by the time you actually get to the holy city? Right. It's going to be a mess. There's no way to keep it blemish-free if you're actually making these travels from these faraway places. Yeah. So the good sense, the religious leaders in Jerusalem said, well, let's just have them buy them here. Yeah. We'll have real nice, real real fancy, blemish-free animals. Yeah. They can just purchase them in the temple to meet the requirements that God himself laid out. This isn't the hypocrisy right. of, the, of the Pharisees, that they can offer those in sacrifice. And they'll be blemish-free and they won't have to worry about it. It. That's this problem is, number one. This is an as- oh, sorry. No, no, go for it. This is kind of an aside, but maybe you'll find it interesting. Do you know that there are some um, economic historians who say that the origin of coinage has to do with ancient Near Eastern societies in which people wanted a medium of exchange to pay their temple tribute, whether it was for a sacrifice or just to pay their temple? I could totally tribute. buy that. That this practice of, sort of converting your thing somewhere else into the appropriate thing at the temple is what sort of um, brought forth coinage itself different kind of coinage i mean just the notion of coinage really i could buy that temple placeholders that allowed you to have a medium of exchange in order to pay your 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 temple tribute whether it was in sacrifice or whether it was in i could totally buy that so anywho no i could totally buy that um i've never heard that but i'm i'm open to it okay and that would predate israel oh it predates well this is happening all over the ancient near east but it would predate jesus it could predate israel though because temples and sacrifice and temple tributes were happening before the jerusalem temple was built so yeah no i'm open to it um, and actually, that did you know I was going toward coins next? I did not. Because coins is problem number two. So problem number one of how to offer, you as Joe Schmo JD offering your sacrifice in the temple, problem number one is how do you get an animal that's blemish-free yeah. from your house to the temple? Right. Okay, problem solved. Problem number two is coinage, though. And so if you're living in the Roman Empire, most of your coins have images of who on them? Caesar. Caesar, or some god that is in reference to Caesar. And Caesar was... We talked about this with the Caesarea Philippi story, right? right. Remember, Caesar had himself, himself declared a god. The son of God and divine. And what could you not bring in the temple? An image of another god, a false right. god. A graven image of another right. god. So the good sense in Jerusalem, they said, well, what do we do about this? They can't, if we, we want them to buy the animal, but they can't bring in these graven images in the temple, so we will convert them. So you have to money change. Okay. You have to change so money. I thought it was just that people were coming from all over the world and there were like currency exchanges. That was probably part of it. Oh, but, but there was another very, need there was temple a, money. Exactly right. So they would oh. use what are called Tyran shekels. Uh-huh. So in Tyre, there was some coinage that didn't have any imagery on it. Uh-huh. And so they would exchange Tyran shekels for your, whatever, your, your images oh, of Caesar. Oh, that would make shekels very valuable in Jerusalem. It would, actually. And you would be able to rip people off. Totally, which happened a ton. Right. So the two things that are going on here. So the, the main point I want to make by pointing out these weird minutiae is that I don't think Jesus is merely against commerce. Yeah. Jesus isn't ticked off at, you know... 
your Bible study selling wreaths outside of the church at Advent. Your Jesus isn't ticked off at the bookstore, you know, selling your Scott Hahn books outside. You know, I know some people well, think, well, even, Jesus is just mad about that, buying and selling even things. At, about encouraging subscribers, for example, to the <laughs> But because I think that is a common misreading. Oh, Jesus is just mad that you're buying that and selling stuff mm-hmm. in the church or in the temple. And if that's true, then I think a lot of us have some problems with, you know. To say nothing of a parish with a gift shop. To or, say nothing of a parish. That's problematic. So that's not what he's what he's doing because there's there's good reason for what's happening there. Now, that being said, we know I, I was reading uh, an academic journal article about dove inflation in the first century. So oh. so they would jack up the prices and they would sure. exhort people and the exchange rates of the tyrant shekels sure. to everything else. So there was lots of corruption happening in the midst of a legitimate practice. Sure. He is probably upset about that. Yeah. But deeper than that, deeper than his anger over that, which is true and that is real. Oh, but that's not the principle. I don't think it is. I think that's involved. What he's doing so what happens when he flips over those tables of all the animals and there's doves and pigeons running around, which are the offering of the poor primarily, and there's coinage flying over the place. What happens in the temple after that point? Because the temple is a pretty finely tuned machine and there was, there was temples being kind of pumped in and out and the priests were offering their sacrifice and you were doing the things. Yeah, it's busy. So when this happens, what's happening inside the temple? Nothing. Nothing. Everyone is watching. Everything comes to a halt because you need the ant. You got to clean it up, and we got to get the animals so that we can get the show back on the road. It was like a little um, conveyor belt in the temple on these feast days. So Jesus, in a big dramatic prophetic action that had to do with corrupt things, like if I went into the sacristy and took all the albs and was like, then there's not going to be a mass. You can't have mass right now. Right. He is temporarily pulling the plug on all temple sacrifice pointing eschatologically to a time when this would happen permanently. I mean, it'd probably take him like 20 minutes, 45 minutes to clean it all up and get the things back on track and and finish things up. But this is a symbolic prophetic action pointing toward an eschatological reality that this whole system is coming to an end. Why? Not that the system is objectively bad, but you have made this system into a den of robbers. You have made this place, which was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, into something that is divisive and actually keeping people from the presence of Yahweh. And for that reason, that temple has to go. That's what this is all pointing toward. But the incarnation doesn't exist as a chastisement for no, temple sacrifice. Absolutely not. It exists as a fulfillment of them. So would it exactly, be this, right. but also, is there a sign of hope or promise there yes, too? Yes. And we'll get to that. Okay. Because the temple is everything. Right. Because there's two temples that are going to be talked about in a parallel way throughout these chapters. Both of those temples will be destroyed. Only one of the temples will come back. Okay. And one of them is Jesus. Two things I want to add to this. Number one is a word about uh, Judas Maccabeus. Okay. Back in the time of the Maccabees, a little yep. bit of Maccabees. Um, I mentioned that there's foreshadowings when Jesus is The greatest is Maccabean ever to strap on a pair of sandals. It's debatable, but that's Maybe. fair. Okay. Um, no, it, probably Judas, yeah. That's legit. Anyway, the, the symbolism of Zechariah with the donkey, the symbolism with um, King Solomon riding into the city on the donkey, th- those are all happening. But there's a much more immediate one, and I think that is the one of the Maccabees. And so about a couple generations prior, you have the story of the Maccabees, right? 
um, I, I think you can tell a lot about a culture of people based on what they name their kids, right? Mm-hmm. So you and I, we both went to Steubenville. We're of a particular generation. We know a lot of people with kids named John Paul. Do yeah, we not? totally. I know a lot of John Pauls. I know a lot of John Pauls. I know a lot of Giovanni Paolos. I Absolutely. I know a couple of Carols. Right, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because a lot of people of our gen- like that was our pope, evoke, and he was right. our hero, yeah. we want to evoke that. Yeah. My grandparents' generation, it's all Marys, yeah. right? Down the line. Right. You know, I, both my grandmothers, my mom, and my mother-in-law are all Mary something. Yeah. Because, again, it was a now, cultural importance. I don't know, probably a lot of Carlo Acutis now. Yeah, and, but it's yeah. going to be that kind of right. thing. Uh-huh. So what are the people in Jesus' time named? Well, there's a lot of Simons. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Johns. There's yeah. a lot of Judases, uh-huh. right? There's a lot of Matthews from Matthias. There's a lot of people who are named after the Maccabee brothers. These are the names of the brothers Maccabee, who a couple generations before did the unthinkable. And what they did was while Jerusalem was under a different occupation, in Jesus' time it's Rome, in the time of the Maccabees it was Greece, and the Greek empire had heavy-handedly made it illegal to practice the faith. They had taken the Torahs, they had put people to death for all these things. It It was horrific. And a group of brothers decided to stand up against it. And they right. said, no, we're going to fight back. Yeah. And they rallied the troops. And they actually did the unthinkable, which was push the Greek empire out of their jurisdiction for a time. When the Maccabee brothers do the unthinkable and actually gain victory over the Greek empire, what yeah. happens? Judas Maccabeus, or one of the Maccabee brothers, come marching into Jerusalem after the victory. And guess what people do? They wave palm branches. They shout hosannas. Right. And guess where he goes? He makes a beeline to the temple where he cleanses it. And he tears down the picture of Zeus that Antiochus oh. had put in the Holy of Holies. He tears down you know, the imagery and the statues of the Greek gods. He cleanses the temple wow. of the foreign powers. Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, you've done it. Right. So when Jesus marches into Jerusalem that day... And everyone is shouting hosannas. They've got, I guarantee you they've got the Maccabee brothers in the back of their minds. Right. And then he goes to the temple and they're like, he's going to cleanse the temple. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> exactly. And they think he's going to cleanse the temple of the Romans, all the trappings of Rome that yeah. are sort of, you know, periodically placed here and there among the temple. But he doesn't cleanse it of Rome. He cleanses it of the Jewish people. He cleanses it of the people of God. Yes, the religious leaders and the corruption, but he's saying, no, we have actually corrupted the temple. This isn't, you know, anti-Semitic in any way, no, shape, or form. Jesus is saying, look, the people of God, have in, the evil one has infiltrated us. A, a kind of a call to conversion. It's a huge call to conversion, which is why everybody who was super excited the day before is all of a sudden not as excited anymore. Some people, it says a lot of people are astonished. And I think a lot of people are just confused. I think the astonishment, in Mark uses it this way. They're like, wait, what, what happened? Yeah. What, what is he doing now? Right. And some people are like, ooh, what's going on here? And he's calling out the Pharisees. That's the first step, or the Sadducees. That's the first step in like tearing down Rome and Pilate. I mean, I think people are thinking all sorts of things. But yeah. the reality is, Jesus is following a very specific historical script. But he totally flips the punchline on its head. To say it's not... It's not, not merely the externality; yes. it's our own internal disposition. Exactly right, and so, that's what's going to land him on the cross. Which, uh, the the whole of Mark, one of the themes is the hardness of heart. Hardness yes. of heart. Exactly. And right. So it's a sort of a exactly. And so to put a fine point on it, what does Mark do? He takes you to verse twenty. It says then they passed by this in the is morning. Eleven twenty. If you're, following I'm sorry. Yeah, chapter eleven, verse twenty. Right after the cleansing of the temple, then they passed by in the morning, probably the next morning, mm-hmm. and they saw the fig tree. Remember the fig, fig tree? Yeah. This is the other end of the sandwich. This is the other side of the Newton. So they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and he said to him, Master, look. I underline that because that term is going to show up in about a chapter. The fig tree which you have cursed has now withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. And he issues a call to faith. Mm -hmm. 
okay, what's happening here? Well, it goes back to the first half of the, of the Newton story, right? When Jesus approached the fig tree the first time, what Mark told you is, because it seemed like a weird story unless you picked the details up. And it wasn't the fig tree's fault that it wasn't the season for figs. Yes, it was. Oh. No, not real. Not actually, because it's a... It's a tree. A tree. <laughs> but it's being used you to You can, like, to say something, something and I'm like, oh, I guess I don't understand the laws <laughs> no, of nature. <laughs> no, no, it's... But the tree is demonstrating something. Right. Not by its own yeah. volition, I guess. But so what it says is it's not the season for figs. So why is Jesus so angry at a fig tree not bearing figs when it's not the season for figs? That doesn't make any sense. Right. But the detail that Mark gave you was that it was a fig tree in leaf. In other words, it was blossoming. Mm. And... It, Horticulturally, apparently, I don't know much about fig trees, but we know that when a fig tree is in bloom, that's the outward sign that it is bearing fruit. Oh. And so if you go to a you know an apple tree in Colorado in February and it doesn't have apples, you shouldn't be ticked off. Right. But if it's a tree that's blooming and giving the outward appearance that it's actually doing something that it's oh. not... That's the problem. And again, yeah, it's really sort of not a whitewashed sepulcher of a tree. Exactly. Because it's not about the fig tree. Because right. what does Mark do? He sandwiches the temple right. and that life of worship that's being corrupted with the fig tree. The fig tree is a metaphor mm-hmm. for what's happening in the life of Israel. They are acting like they're holy. They're acting as though they are being the kind of people that God has called them to be. But if you dig beneath the surface just a little bit, you're not going to find fruit. And, and that is not, you know, there are ways in which I think people say, I, I have heard people say, oh, well, one thing that happens in the, with the Gospels is that um, as Christianity is adapted by Gentiles, inserted into the language or symbolism of the Gospels is a certain kind of anti-Semitism, which, no. like, which aims to, to divorce yeah. Israel, Israel from Christianity. So the heresy no. of Marcionism, for exactly example. Exactly right. But that, but, but. It does not seem to me that that is what's happening so much as that is not at all actual call to conversion. Yes, it is absolutely a call to conversion. And to miss that aspect of it, I think, is to miss the whole point of it. Number one, it's not an accusation against the Jews. It's an accusation against the people of God. The people of God are prone to this kind of thing. This is why one of the things that can never be changed in the liturgy is the call to repentance at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. So that we never fall into the den of robbers and thieves that we know we are all prone to falling into. So, again, it's, a, it's what do you call it, evergreen as mm-hmm. far as the message goes. Um, but it's also the fact that you, you have to consider this because I, I find this really interesting. Jesus, and I, I want to kind of close us on a word of chapter 13, which is when Jesus basically describes what this is going to be like. Um, he announces that this is all going to happen, that this temple's going down. Mm-hmm. But then it doesn't happen for, what, 40 more years? Right. Why not? I mean, he just made this huge pronouncement. It, it actually reminds me of the story of Noah and the ark. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how long it took Noah to build the ark? Many years. 120, right. it says. 120 years. What was... Uh, there's a there's a commentary on Noah in, I think it's Second Peter. First or Second Peter, I can't remember which. That talks about what the vocation of Noah was. Mm-hmm. And the vocation of Noah was not simply to be a boat builder. That wasn't the job. The job of Noah was to be a preacher of repentance to the people. Mm-hmm. Why did God give Noah a job that was going to last so stinking long? So that he could call the people back to repentance mm-hmm. and they could be saved. Yeah. Why does Jesus allow so, what does God allow so long between his foretelling telling of this event and it's actually happening to give the people of God such ample opportunity to turn back to him. In other words, God is saying there's consequences for stuff we do. There's consequences for our sin, but God's not a God who's eager to give the consequences. He wants the repentance. He wants the conversion of heart. He wants to call us back. Consequences are still going to happen because a just God doesn't let consequences go right. off indefinitely. Right. 
But, I mean, you do have to wonder about the fact that, man, you made a big deal about the temple and it doesn't happen for 40 years. Right. Why not? Yeah. Oh, maybe because you've constantly wanted to call the people back. From that point on, from the fig tree on, Jesus spends mainly all of chapter 12 kind of going head to head with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders. They don't like what he's doing. They're trying to demonstrate in front of everybody else that this guy's actually a fool and he's hypocritical and he's wrong. Um, there's one, I, I don't want to go into all of these wonderful stories because they're actually pretty powerful and Jesus gives a lot of parables. But there's one story I just want to mention just as a side note because I think it's funny. Uh, it's in chapter 12, verse 13, and we don't have to read it, but it's the famous line where they come to him and they're questioning him about taxes, remember? And they're in, in the temple at this point, and they're questioning about taxes, and they're like, okay, well, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Knowing that if he says, no, you should pay your taxes to Caesar, he's basically acknowledging that a foreign god, a pagan god, is actually right. worthy of something. And if he says no, then they're going to tell the foreign god, hey, you should put this guy to death because yeah. he just ask for treason against you. And do you remember what Jesus answers when they say, should we pay the taxes to Caesar or not? What does Jesus say? He asks for a coin. That's the punchline. Everybody thinks the punchline is the render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. The punchline is way before that when he says, hey, pull out a coin, O religious leader, which they do. Where are they? At the temple. Which you're not allowed to have graven images within, oh. which is why they have the whole money changer system. Right. And I bet everybody, we don't, we miss that. Laugh. We don't know the con. Everybody around is like, oh, you pulled out a coin. Because like you it, already demonstrated the hypocrisy. Oh, okay. So if someone's yelling at you about not smoking and then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. But by any chance you have a light? Yeah, they, exactly. And they pull right. out their... Yeah, it's that kind of a thing. Okay. So left and right, I just think it's kind of a funny yeah, scene. Totally, yeah, But left and right, he's pointing out the hypocrisy. And every time... It's like a Scooby-Doo episode. They keep trying to <laughs> trap him. And they're like, oh, foiled again. Mm-hmm. It's not really like that. But um, so he goes back and forth. There's all this... Um, there's all the, this strife. Uh, it culminates... Well, it, it culminates a little bit later. But because I want to talk about it next time... I'll mention it right now, but there's a, a wonderful parable, a, a wonderful story that happens at the end of chapter 12, verse 41, where it says, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the multitude putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. You knew that someone was rich or had given a large sum because they would put a, literally a bigger coin into the metal treasury so that you could hear it clank louder than everybody else's. That's how you knew that, oh, look, they've given a lot. Um, and then a poor widow came, and she put in two copper coins, which make a penny, the widow's mite. And he called to his disciples, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the treasury. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has given everything she had. Her whole, actually the Greek is bios, her whole life. Um, this is a woman that is pouring everything out to the temple because she knows what the temple is supposed to be. She's not going to be condemned for this, even though the t- that temple will fall. Jesus will hold her out as a model of the kind of faith that he's asking for. But she is going to be important for what happens in our next episode. So I just want to mention her. Okay. Because from her point, Jesus is out. And in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Then he came out of the temple. 
Mm. As he was coming out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, that look, by the way, the last time someone said that was in the fig tree story. Right. And it's again, it's, it's just oh, one word, sure. mm-hmm. but I think it's significant. Yeah. Look, teacher, look at the fig tree. Right. Look at the temple buildings, yeah. teacher. What wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Herod uh, was staging a huge renovation um, project right now, probably as a, as a way of legitimizing himself as, as king. Um, so they're like, look at how pretty it looks, Jesus. We've been traveling around the country, but look at how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, which is a huge downer of a statement, right? Look mm-hmm. at how beautiful it is. Oh, it's all going to be destroyed. Yeah. Um, which is true. Do you know, uh, I don't know if you've been to the Holy Land, but a lot of people are familiar with the Western Wall that's mm-hmm. called the Wailing Wall. That is not the last existent wall of the temple. That was the rubble. Eventually, when the Jewish people were allowed to come back and there was not one stone upon another they took the rubble and they constructed it into a wall where they could try to remember what it used to be so not one stone was left this does come true but then it says verse three then he sat down in the mount of olives opposite the temple that doesn't seem like much but if you pay attention to the geography what jesus has just done is basically pronounce a curse on the temple and then what? The presence of God left the temple. He would have had to have gone out the east gates, mm-hmm. had, would have had to cross the Kidron Valley, and then he goes and sits on the Mount of Olives, which is precisely what the presence of God did in Ezekiel. Right. Which, if you have the eyes to see it, you should be saying, oh, we, crap. You do now. <laughs> that's wow. that's yeah. not good. Wow. And then Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, so the ones who are with us at the Transfiguration, and Andrew, said privately, tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign when all these things are accomplished? When will this be? When will what be? The turning over of the stones? Yeah, the destruction of the temple. Right. Yeah. That's important because that's when Jesus launches into this discourse, or monologue, I suppose, that sure sounds like the end of the world. And he goes on, he's like, there's, there's going to be many who come in my name. They're going to lead you astray. You're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, all of this stuff. And it sure sounds like Jesus is talking about the end of the world. Mm-hmm. But what the apostles asked him about was what? The end of the temple. When will the temple, which is our primary spiritual, political, and economic sign. The, the, to, un, to understand the weight of this. So imagine you woke up tomorrow morning and you looked at your phone. And there were news notifications that the Vatican, Wall Street, and Washington, D.C. had all been destroyed. and all been bombed in the night. And were all gone. So the center of our spiritual life, the center of our economic life, if only symbolically, and the center of our political life. They're all gone. That's the weight of saying the temple's going to be destroyed. So again, this is everything. So in other words, when Jesus talks about wars, rumors of wars, and the sun turning dark, and the moon will fall from the sky, and the stars will fall from the heavens, which he goes on to talk about all of these things, he's not talking about literally the end of the world. He's talking about the world as you know it is going to be flipped upside down. Yeah, There are... To my knowledge, three times when Jesus, when the Bible uses language like this, it's called apocalyptic language. Yeah. And the only three times that I'm aware of are when the Bible is talking about the downfall of pagan empires. When Babylon, when Egypt, and I think when Assyria are destroyed, the prophets talk about, for Egypt, the moon is not going to give its light, and the sun will fall from the sky, and the stars will come down. And, and it uses language of the world being turned upside down to speak about the demise of nations who have turned against God. Again, 
God is not anti-Semitic. Jesus is not against his own people. He's saying his own people have allowed this building to be something it's never meant to be. And so if the building is obsolete, if that has become a den of robbers, the place for which doesn't exist anymore, what does Jesus need to do? This is the accusation that they're going to make against him when he's on trial. There's got to be a new temple. And I think when the apostles hear, oh, the temple is going to be destroyed. If you're really the king, what would you do? You build a new temple. Right. What's Jesus going to do? He's going to build a new temple. This isn't a defeatist gospel. This isn't like, well, I guess we're all going to be punished and everything's going to be destroyed and that's that. Jesus is saying one has to pass away for the sake of the building of another. Yeah. And it's, of course, analogous to his body. His yeah. body has to pass away for the building of another. Our world will pass away for the building of the new heavens and the new earth. This is profoundly beautiful. But the last thing I'll say about this, and then we'll call it a day, is that he says in verse 30... He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things have taken place. You know how long a generation is for the Jewish people? It's 40 very, years. 40 years. How long is it between this moment and the destruction of the temple? 40 years. 40 years. This is where he gives the time frame. Wow. And he says things like, you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. You're going to see this desolating sacrilege. In other words, pagan symbols will be set up in the temple. And he says, when you see all this stuff happening, do you remember the command he says? Go to the mountains. Head to the hills. This is where we get the term head to the hills. Which if Jesus was talking about the end of the world, does it really matter if you're in the city or if you're up in a mountain? I mean, it's a prettier place, I guess, to watch the end of the world. Right. But he says, when you see all this stuff taking place, flee to the mountains. Yeah. And according to, I think Josephus talks about it. According to whatever records we have of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, do you know how many followers of Jesus were left in the city? None. None. Guess where they were? In the mountain. They were in a mountain refuge in a place called Pella where they had all fled when they saw the pagan armies and the wars and the rumors of war on the horizon. Because wow. everyone understood the message. Right. And the goal was to try to bring as many along with them. Yeah. From this point on, the, the very explicit telling of the destruction of one temple, Mark is going to move on to the very explicit destruction of another temple, which yeah. is what we'll talk about next time. Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by our Sunday School teacher, Dr. Scott Powell. Our producer is Kate Oliveira. Next week, we'll talk about Mark chapters 14 through 16. That episode will include a recording of the readings from Pillar co-founder Ed Condon, but feel free to read them on your own, too. We'll see you next week at Sunday School. 